Hi everyone, welcome back to SALT Talks. I'm Rachel Pether. I'm a senior advisor to Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investments firm, as well as being the MC for SALT, which is a thought leadership platform and networking forum that encompasses finance, technology, and politics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do with these SALT Talks is aim to empower big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts, just as we do at our SALT event series. Today, we're very excited to welcome Stuart Leckie to SALT Talks. Stuart is the founding chairman of the Hong Kong Retirement Schemes Association and was chairman of the CSFA Institute Advisory Council on Standards and Financial Markets Integrity. He now advises on investments and pensions in the Far East and has advised the Chinese government on pension reforms. He was a director of the Exchange Fund Investment Limited, which created the Hong Kong government's tracker fund, which was the first ETF in Asia. Stuart is the author of two books, Investment Funds in China and Pension Funds in China. And if that's not enough, he was appointed Justice of the Peace by the Hong Kong government and has been awarded an Order of the British Empire by the British government. Stuart, you're the first OBE that I've ever interviewed, so welcome to today's show. Thank you very much, Rachel. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting you in Singapore a few years ago now, and your knowledge of Hong Kong and the wider Asia region was certainly impressive. But maybe before we dive deeper into Hong Kong, tell me a bit about the journey that took you there in the first place. Yes, <clears throat> um, I was uh, born and brought up in Scotland, and my degree was uh, mathematics, pure mathematics. So I decided to train as an actuary. So I did that. Um, qualified as a fellow of the Institute of Actuaries, and then worked in insurance in the UK for a number of years. I got something called a Churchill Fellowship, and that enabled me to go to US and Canada, and I saw a little bit of the international dimension. After that, I was asked to go to Hong Kong to establish an office, a pension consulting office, and the expectation was that I'd be in Hong Kong for two years. Well, the first two years was very tough, as I was a new boy in town, but gradually got a little bit better. So after two years, I said, I'll do one more year. And after three years, I said, I'll do maximum one more year. So in fact, um, 40 years passed since I first arrived in Hong Kong. But I don't regret it. I think I've been very lucky to see things, uh, transformation of Hong Kong and even more transformation of China. I think that's the typical expat story, isn't it? You go somewhere for two years and you end up staying for a lifetime in many cases. So Indeed. as the founding chairman of the Hong Kong Retirement Schemes Association, what led you to establish that in the first place? Well, what was happening was that um, Hong Kong has a very poor record for social security, for things like uh, unemployment, uh, health care and so on. So the government actually decided to establish this uh, mandatory provident fund, which is not really a pension scheme. It doesn't give a monthly income after retirement. It's really a sort of compulsory savings scheme. But when this was being discussed in the 1990s, there was a great deal of uh, mystery and uh, lack of understanding. So it seemed to me that we should have some organization where we could um, approach the government and say, this is okay, but something else is not good enough and you must explain and so on and so forth. So we were meeting a need at the time to form a proper professional organization that people would be able to turn to 
Um, we were lucky to get uh, good speakers and to get some uh, good rapport with uh, other countries, particularly UK and Australia. And so things just um, developed from there. And how is it working then with the handover of Hong Kong to China and the integration with the pension schemes there? Well, when Hong Kong set up the Mandatory Provident Fund, uh, that was purely for Hong Kong. And China, in fact, has its own quite complex uh, pension system, in fact, more than one system. So in the long run, in other words, after the 50-year period has passed, um, one presumes that the Hong Kong retirement system will be folded into the Chinese pension system. But that's not really been uh, confirmed yet until we get quite a bit closer to the year 2047, which is when the ultimate handover will take place. I guess, you know, the, the Chinese economy is so much more complex than the, the Hong Kong one. What are some of the considerations within the Chinese pension system, given that there's such a sort of bifurcation, I guess, between the, the rural population and the urban population? Yes. Well, that's right. Uh, China has two to totally different pension systems uh, for the urban population in towns and cities and the rural population in the countryside. Every pension system has got two sides to it. First of all, there's the uh, design of the system. And secondly, there's the funding or the financing of the system. So the, the Chinese uh, pension system for the urban population is actually quite a sensible design but there's a huge shortage of cash to finance it. So what's going to happen is that the cash requirements to pay out the pension benefits in future is going to increase and increase and become a very serious burden um, once the numbers of employed people in China uh, greatly expand. In the meantime, the uh, rural population is just a very small amount, a kind of pitiful small amount, because the farmers, um, even though they're encouraged to save for retirement, if they need a new tractor or if they, or if they fail the harvest, um, they can't even think about retirement. They've got to solve the urgent problem now. So many considerations. Um, salaries, of course, vary tremendously between the rich cities of uh, Shanghai, Beijing, and the poor towns and cities in the countryside. So you have this uh, big disparity in wages, and that inevitably means a big disparity in pensions, which in one way doesn't seem fair, but is probably reality for many years, if not decades to come. I remember that reminds me of a comment that you actually made in Singapore, which really stuck with me. You said that China will grow old before it becomes rich. So how does the demographics play into that split as well? Yes, well, Chinese uh, population is just coming up to 1.4 billion and it will peak actually very soon within the next uh, decade and then have a long, slow um, decline. The United Nations produces very good population projections and by the end of this century, we would expect China's population to be down just probably a little over 1 billion. In the meantime, India, the Indian population is growing pretty rapidly so first of all, India is going to overtake China. And at the end of the century, we expect uh, India's population to be somewhere between 1.4 and 1.5 billion. So these are you know, huge numbers with huge implications 
and for the finances and for getting the demographic projections correct. Do you think in terms of the, the pension system, there's any resistance or the, the pushback to the one child policy in terms of how it's affected demographics and how that might affect people in, in terms of getting their pensions when they do eventually retire? How does that factor into the equation? Yes, well, ab absolutely. Um, basically, until quite recently, all the projections were done on the basis of one child. Um, now, in fact, um, China's realised that there is a cost and there is a downside um, to the one-child policy. So about five years ago, they amended the one-child policy to a two-child policy. Now, in fact, the government have been quite surprised, quite disappointed that not more people um, are having more than one child. But what's actually happening in the cities, in major cities in China, is that and this, of course, is happening in many other cities worldwide. Um, if a couple have one child, then that's fine. But if they have two children, then they need a three-bedroom flat. Um, and so um, that's not so easy um, in the environment where both husband and wife basically have to work in order to compete for you know, income and pensions and education, um, housing, and so on. So. It's really been a very interesting phenomenon to watch conditions in the major cities in China become closer and closer to Hong Kong. And interestingly enough, the um, fertility rate in Hong Kong is just about the lowest in the world. A rich society, lots of freedom, but people are very leery about having more than one child. And has that always been the case, or do you think that's associated with sort of the, the increase in cost of living and expenses. Yeah, well, if we go all the way back to the foundation of uh, People's Republic of China in 1949, at that stage, and of course, virtually the whole population was rural, but at that stage, the average family had between five and six children. So th this in fact has benefited China in the last few decades with um, lots of those people, five and six children, now in the workforce, um, or having been in the workforce, um, but it is not going to help them going forward where the proportion of people over retirement age is um, increasing pretty rapidly now. Mm. Do you think it's also leading people to work longer or start earlier? I mean, I have, you know, we, we heard those stories of chi child labor in, in China and people starting work or being forced to work from quite young. Do you think that sort of this pressure or this tension is, is impacting that as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, we have this phenomenon of um, migrant workers in China, where something like maybe 80 million people um, from the countryside um, actually work in towns and cities. Usually the male will um, work in a building site, the woman will work in a restaurant or, or a factory. And so they've got two incomes to send money back home, where maybe they've got one child, maybe they've got two children. Um, hopefully from the age of maybe seven, um, the youngsters can um, feed the chicken and feed the ducks, but they can't really do farm work. And so the parents try to get back to whatever village they come from at Chinese New Year, which of course is just awfully important to uh, Chinese people. So um, this migrant workers um, phenomenon um, it's 
really one way of um, factories having access to cheap labor, but it's probably not very good for the young kids to be left alone or maybe left with a grandparent for, you know, 11 and a half months of the year. No, certainly. That does seem like quite a lot of responsibility to place on young yeah. shoulders. I, I do want to dive into some of the other risks that you see facing China, but we've actually already had quite a few questions coming in from the audience that relate to Hong Kong, so I'll address those as well. Um, someone has also just asked for clarification on what the Hong Kong retirement system looks like and does it have multiple pillars? Mm. Well, the, the Hong Kong retirement system, um, called the Mandatory Provident Fund, um, it's mandatory compulsory, it's provident fund in that it's um, a lump sum uh, scheme. So um, individuals um, pay 5% of salary up to a ceiling and the companies pay 5% of salary um, also. And this is accumulated, there is a choice of fund, there's a very wide choice of funds now. Um, so you can be equities, you can be bonds, you can be a cash fund, different currencies and so on. So there's no shortage of fund. Um, people are not really encouraged to switch funds too often, but um, uh, it is very possible if you want to try to, to do that. The kind of weakness of the system is that when you get to retirement age, 60 or maybe 65, then you're going to get a lump sum. But the question is, what do you do then? What people need is an income. Um, they've got to have a, an income to live on, not a lump sum that they may uh, be able to invest wisely, but very often they may not be able to invest very wisely. So this is the biggest single flaw in the system of how our individual is going to convert lump sum to a pension because the government isn't going to do it for them. That seems quite a lot of responsibility to place on the on the individual as well that might have no investing knowledge, as you say. Exactly. Uh, someone has also uh, asked about your personal views, and I guess this ties into people looking at various funds, so fixed income and equities. What's your outlook on uh, emerging markets, fixed income and equities, and specifically if you could talk about Asia? Wow. How much time do we have? <laughs> These are big questions. Um, I, personally, I'm um, a bit of an equity man. I tend to have more in equities than anything else um, on the basis that I, I know it'll be volatile, but um, I'm, I'm not planning to sell up uh, anytime soon. Um, so quite happy to have um, uh, predominantly equities. Um, I think part of the question related to fixed income or emerging market fixed income, sure, why not a 5 or 10% in that? But I certainly wouldn't put everything into emerging markets um, fixed income. I mean, we've got problems. Places like um, Argentina, um, once again, are on the verge of defaulting. So um, I, I would just say to people, by all means, have a have quite a bit in equities by all means, or have a balanced fund, probably a balanced fund, very good thing. There are a number of um, sort of ETF type of funds, um, like index funds, and then you should just mimic the index, no better and no worse. So um, yeah, uh, and, and probably don't, don't switch too often. Um, that's just um, a sign of impatience. And so with the Hong Kong, we've had an, another question from the audience come in about the 
the way the Hong Kong Pension uh, Retirement Schemes Association actually invests, given that it has this lump sum payment at the end, does that encourage it to take on more risk than, say, a, another pension fund might because it doesn't have, you know, defined annual ongoing liability streams? Or how does it actually invest? Okay, well, the way it works, uh, Retirement Scheme Association is really a trade body it's not actually doing the investments themselves, but it will, um, from time to time, have speakers from different fund managers or different parts of the world uh, coming to talk about how they see things. Um, so th that's the nature of the organization. Also, if there's something that the government are doing or maybe something the government are not doing, then Retirement Scheme Association, together with others, of course, can approach the government and say, look, this is no good. We need to change this. Or need to amend. So it's, um, you know, the situation is you cannot get your money out of the system until you retire or get to at least age uh, 60. Um, and then you have to think very, very carefully about how long you may have a happy and productive um, retirement life so that, um, you know, you don't run out of cash. Yeah, so I guess that's something that we're all we're all concerned about. Uh, we've also had a number of questions come in relating to the mainland China pension scheme as well. Um, more about, I guess, the specifics of it. So in terms of the Chinese pension systems, then that typically works as a, a typical pension scheme, does it, in terms of monthly payouts upon retirement and sort of standardised yeah. retirement age at like 60 or 65? That's correct. Um, it, first of all, it is a pension system. Uh, the retirement age is used to be 60 and used to be 55 or even 50 for women. But that's being pushed up now. And of course, what they should be doing is having a retirement age probably more like 65 to tie in with the life expectancy uh, now and not just stop at uh, 60. Um, so uh, the second part of the question was... <laughs> Uh, that was more about if it was just a typical pension scheme in terms of receiving well, monthly well, payouts once you retire. Well, it is, except when this started off, the, the current system started off um, based on something called Document 26 of uh, 1997, as it happens. Um, this was uh, ideally to give the average uh, person, average urban worker, to give him somewhere maybe round about between 50 and 60% of final salary. So if you've got 50 to 60% of final salary, and as long as your salary is not totally inadequate, you should be able to live uh, quite well. But one of the concerns is that um, knowledge in China of how the pension system works is very, very scarce. Um, it's now almost given up in having a funded system. So they're basically having to rely and pay as you go, in other words, contributions collected this month are just paid out next month by way of benefits. So that's okay, so long as the population is stable. But we know that the um, increase, the aging increase is going to be very severe. I think if my numbers are correct, um, the, uh, in about uh, 20 years time, uh, the number of people aged over 60 in China will be about 28% of the total population. This is going to be a huge burden on the workers, let's say 20 years from now, having to pay these relatively generous pensions 
um, to many, many retired people. Mm. And so, and we know we've discussed, you know, in depth on, on the demographics side of the equation. What are some of the other key risks that you see facing China? And I appreciate <laughs> that that's another question that could be spoken about for a whole day, but maybe you could highlight where you see some of the other key risks at the moment. Well, you could um, get out your atlas and look around China and um, many places could be potential risks, starting off with the South China Seas, then maybe with North Korea, then how about Mongolia, and then special problem with uh, Xinjiang and what's happening with the Muslim population of China uh, being, uh, uh, what is the phrase, re-educated, I think is the phrase. Then you've got tension in uh, Tibet. Um, you've got borders between China and India, as we saw quite recently. So there's many geographical issues. And then there's um, demographic issues that we've talked about already. And then there's also other things like uh, corruption, like pandemics. Um, this is not the first and it's not going to be the last um, pandemic we have at the moment. Things like um, bonds and debt. Sometimes in China, it seems a bit of a miracle that they don't have more problems with um, banks or other institutions uh, getting into default. So if you add up all these potential problems, you probably come to at least 15, maybe closer to 20 um, problems. So in a way, it's not that um, China can avoid these problems. It's just that you should know that you're going to have very big problems from time to time and get ready or if possible to prepare for it so that um, you get out of the huge difficulty, whatever it um, relates to. A couple of questions on the debt piece. Why is it that you think we haven't seen as many defaults from Chinese banks given the high debt positions? Well, see, I think the, 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 the Banking Commission and the Insurance Commission have now been uh, integrated into one very big Chinese Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission. And I think they, they do have a kind of early warning system that um, tries to prevent um, any uh, big problems um, uh, happening. But I mean, problems do happen. For example, uh, Anbang Insurance Company was basically mostly a fraudulent company. And that was very a very seriously large institution. Didn't get too much um, publicity out here because it wasn't affecting Hong Kong or other countries purely internal. But um, undoubtedly there are probably more problems than we might care to see from the outside. Mm. And you also, you know, mention debt as it relates to sort of the, the sovereign wealth fund world as well. I believe that CIC actually uh, borrowed from the, so they essentially issued bonds to create the fund. So they borrowed from the you know, borrowed from the future. Is this a typical structure that Chinese do? I mean, it's very unusual for a sovereign wealth fund to actually establish its, itself in this way rather than taking, you know, commodity revenues as they have in, in the Middle yes. East with oil. Well, yes, I'd agree it's um, pretty unusual. If we just um, think about sovereign wealth fund for a moment, there's, there's two types. There's the genuine sovereign wealth fund which is pretty well independent from government um, and they, they do the right thing investment-wise, independent audit and independent management and so on. And the second type of sovereign wealth fund is 
what I'd call a quasi-sovereign world fund, where there's a lot of influence or control by government or by the Ministry of Finance, and basically they have to do what they're told. So, I mean, the example of a, uh, a genuine one would be, for example, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, an example of a Sovereign Wealth Fund that is only a quasi-fund would be CIC in China. There's no way that the government will permit CIC to do too many independent things. Mm. And with, you know, you've been in Hong Kong now for, what, 20, over 20 years. Um, how have you, what's it been like on the ground with the sort of tension that you've seen playing out with China? I appreciate you're not there at the moment, which we'll also dive into um, shortly, but maybe you could give your first-hand account of how it's been actually living in Hong Kong. Well, I've been there um, two times 20 years, namely 40 years, in fact. Um, so um, I think the first uh, 20, probably first 30 years, um, everything was good, everything was positive, the, the economy was expanding, Hong Kong was doing exceedingly well. But um, in the last year or so, we've had um, triple, triple problems, being the riots in favour of uh, democracy, um, and then with the uh, pandemic, um, and then with this um, introduction of the new national security law, which is very unpopular in China, as a Chinese law that, that has been forced upon Hong Kong. So it seems to me that um, what the Chinese government are trying to do, are they try, they're trying to convert Hong Kong into being a Chinese city just as rapidly as they can. I guess many people thought this would happen maybe just at or just before uh, the year 2047, but it's happening now um, when we're only sort of halfway between 1997 and um, 2047. So, um, I mean, I, th I think, well, Hong Kong will end up not even as a very major, or the danger is it, it doesn't become a very major city because population at the moment, seven and a half million, it might go to nine million. But when you compare it with um, Shanghai's 22 million, Beijing's 23 million and so on, um, Hong Kong is not going to be anything like the biggest city or the most important city in China. So as long as we realize that, then, I mean, Hong Kong is a wonderful place in, in many ways with um, the weather can be very attractive and a lot of other good things in Hong Kong, but it is going to change in a way that um, maybe some of the expatriates uh, don't care for. Mm. And I guess this has probably only been highlighted by the current pandemic and I think would be remiss not to talk about that given that you're you know now sitting in Scotland unable to travel freely back to Hong Kong what or how do you think that the current pandemic has maybe accelerated some of the issues that you've discussed and I guess you were out there during SARS as well so maybe you could talk about maybe how that's prepared Hong Kong or you know how mm -hmm. the impact of previous um, things have played out. Yes. Well, since you mentioned SARS, I mean, SARS in many ways is much more serious than the pandemic so far, um, because about 300 people in Hong Kong died as a result of SARS. Um, and we're nothing like that in Hong Kong with uh, COVID. Um, I, th I think 
in some ways the challenge of COVID is that people don't quite understand it. They don't, don't it's, it's very sort of hard to predict what's going to happen with its application to individuals or the second wave or even third waves. So there's so much more that we need to learn um, about the uh, pandemic. Um, if we look over the history, then of course there's been pandemics in Europe, there's been pandemics in Asia um, from time to time. But this one is perhaps a little bit more frightening to people uh, because I guess many people thought that this sort of thing just couldn't happen in modern day society, but um, it absolutely can happen. Um, my situation is that I came back to UK uh, just before Christmas, last December, but by the time I was coming back to visit Hong Kong, in fact, um, uh, things had deteriorated quite a bit and I could have actually got into Hong Kong after two weeks quarantine um, by Hong Kong and then two weeks quarantine by the UK. So that was really just um, too high a price. But I actually do my Hong Kong work in the mornings. I've got a home office uh, set up and uh, that's quite efficient in, um, by email and phone and so on in speaking to all the people in Hong Kong I have to work with. No, remote working has, I mean, I think everyone's just appreciating how easy it is to do and how you can, you can do it from anywhere. Uh, we have a lot of audience questions still coming through. We only do have five minutes left. So I'll end on a couple of serious questions and then a more lighthearted one to finish. Um, just a more specific question about China and the pension scheme. Is it committing towards overseas uh, infrastructure projects uh, such as China's State Development Investment Corporation? And I appreciate we actually haven't spoken about One Belt, One Road yet, and that's actually on purpose because I know that could be another entire discussion. Mm. Um, but are you seeing China commit much to infrastructure projects? Um, yes, I mean, we've got the whole um, uh, road belt and system uh, system. So that's, um, of course, trying to do good and to help a lot of um, smaller countries. But of course, it's also serving China's aims of getting more influence and more involvement in many, many countries. Um, I think um, China and the amount that it's happy to invest outside China, I mean, that, that is a key question. Um, We've got things like the new Asian Infrastructure Bank, which is perhaps um, competing with Asian Development Bank. Um, so um, I, th I think it'll be very interesting just to see how this develops. I mean, there have been quite a lot of um, criticisms in some countries as to the attitude or the way that the Chinese have been acting almost like a colonial power. So um, there's certainly uh, issues there to be solved. But I mean, I think China's smart enough to um, implement the One Belt system and so on um, without um, causing too much um, angst on the other side. Mm, that's interesting. Now we actually have time for one final question. So <laughs> there have been quite a lot of discussions about China issuing a digital currency as well. What are your thoughts on a future role for cryptocurrencies 
in China, particularly if it's a, a Chinese government issued currency. Do you have any, any view on that? Um, I don't own any um, digital currencies and I don't plan to and I wouldn't advise anyone else to. And do, you, to this extent. do you think that the, the Chinese government is likely to um, go ahead and issue their own digital currency? I know there's been some talk of that for quite some time. I think if China was to do that, it would be with the sole purpose of um, dis disturbing and disrupting um, other countries' currencies. Mm. Wonderful. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, Stuart. So I just wanted to thank you so much for your time today. You've answered a lot of difficult questions and really given a really great overview into both the Hong Kong and Chinese markets. So thanks so much for joining us today and hopefully you'll come back on and we can do a deep dive into one of the topics further. Thank you very much indeed, Rachel.